Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Breast Cancer Conversations. I am so excited to be speaking with you today, and we have a stellar conversation happening with Roberta Lombardi, the breast cancer survivor turned founder of Infinite Strength. She is incredible. I love today's conversation because not only does she share her experience with a breast cancer diagnosis, being a mom of three girls, but how she actually through sitting in an infusion chair and overhearing stories of other women and the hardships they're going through, was able to take this information that really we only get when we talk to people and turn it into an amazing foundation. She has set forth with infinite strength to support single mothers who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. If you're new to Breast Cancer Conversations, I do want to take this moment to give a shout out to all of our programming, events, and webinars that are free to our breast cancer community at survivingbreastcancer.org. Please hop over there to check out our Thursday Night Thrivers weekly meetup, as well as our monthly book club, our Movement Mondays, and so many events and information happening to support you from day one and beyond. If you're loving our content, please feel free to give us a review, some stars, some love, share on social media, and be sure to follow us at Surviving Breast Cancer Org, all one word, on Instagram and Twitter, SBC underscore ORG. Now let's dive right in. Welcome to the conversation. Roberta, it's so nice to have you on the podcast, Breast Cancer Conversations. I know we've been following each other a lot on social media and all of the great work that you've been doing over the last couple of years with your foundation and nonprofit work after your diagnosis. And I feel like you and I have some parallels there because we've been diagnosed with breast cancer, went through the entire turmoil, kind of lived it, experienced it figured out where the gaps were, and then really kind of the pain into purpose, right? How do we take living with a diagnosis of breast cancer, regardless of stage, and really pay it forward and help the community at large, whether it's local or national or global. So I would love to um, have our listeners kind of hear it from you to introduce yourself, where you're calling in from, and a little bit about how you discovered that you had breast cancer. Well, first of all, thank you. I'm so excited to be here, and it's so nice to finally see you face-to-face. I live in Connecticut, and in 2016, I found my lump during a routine self-exam. I was always big on doing my self-exam every month. So I definitely knew that what I was feeling at the time was not normal. It didn't feel like a cyst. It, It was different. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks. And it was the end of summer. And I said, I'm going to keep an eye on it. I'm not going to rush to the doctors. I'm going to give it these last few weeks of summer, make an appointment for the beginning of school, which is what I did. And it was interesting because the minute I went to my physician, who I had been with for a long time, he felt it. And he said, I don't think it's cancer. It doesn't feel like a cancer, Mm. but let's get a biopsied. And of course, I go in for the biopsy just a few days later, and right then the radiologist took my hand and said, it's very suspicious. You Mm. need to prepare yourself. Oh, wow. I had been one of those women that went yearly for her mammogram, never missed it, ended up finding out that 
you know, the year before there was literally nothing visible on the mammogram. And this time, not only was the lump visible, but all the, when they did the, um, the ultrasound with the mammogram and all that, they saw that the whole breast was covered with cells. Oh my goodness. So that's a rapid change, right? So I did the biopsy and of course it came back positive. Uh, I ended up with invasive ductal carcinoma, uh, triple positive. So they sent me in for, you know, my consultation. I opted to be aggressive with a double mastectomy. And then based on the fact that I was really, really HER2 positive, according to my oncologist, off the charts, HER2 positive, um, they recommended that I have, you know, chemo, three different types of chemotherapies and Herceptin. So all total, I was in treatment for 14 months. And, you know, it was, um, well, first I should say, I, I had many people in my family with breast cancer. I was not genetically predisposed to it. I did all the genetic testing. So I thought I kind of knew, you know, cause I watched an aunt die and I watched my grandmother have breast cancer twice in the whole bit. You don't know until you're there. You don't know until you're in it. And that's the big lesson, right? Mm-hmm. You always think you can empathize with what somebody's going to go through, but you can't until you're in it because it's a totally different thing. And I, I dealt with the mastectomy. Okay. Um, the chemotherapy, once I lost my hair, that's when I really felt myself sinking into that pit of despair. And uh, I was lucky. I had my husband, I had my little girls, I had my close friends. And so I could get through it reasonably well, considering, right? I mean, definitely the financial piece of it. Emotionally, mentally, nothing could save me from what that did to me. But I knew I was different every week when I would go into the hospital for infusions because I would hear these women talk and it was scary, you know, talking about what they needed to do and how they didn't have anybody to be with them at chemotherapy and they didn't have anybody to help them. And they were maybe a single parent and they didn't feel well. And how were they going to take care of their kids or how could they afford all the costs that aren't covered by insurance, or in many cases, they were underinsured, right? So they were really struggling. So when I got out of treatment, I was really very messed up emotionally. I just couldn't get out of my own way. I just felt like I didn't even want to get up out of bed, and that's not me. And they put me right from chemo, they put me on those aromatase inhibitors, and that really messed with me. <laughs> yes, I'm on those too. And my emotions and everything, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, awful, awful. So I couldn't, you know, stop the fear of recurrence. I didn't know what my new normal was because I was used to going to the hospital every week and having blood tests and everything else. So finally, I talked to my oncologist and I said, okay, I'm not, I, I have to get off these pills. I cannot do this because I, I literally can't get out of bed in the morning. My joints hurt. I feel like there's this dark curtain pulled over my head. That's not me. I have little girls. I can't do this. So she told me to take a break. Maybe I needed a break. I never went back on them. Really? But I got a lot of clarity. For, for months afterwards, you know, I felt the fog kind of lifting. And uh, I decided there had to be something 
that I could do to help others because I had every every support system in place to get through it. And I still struggled. And I thought about all the women that didn't have everything right in place and what they must go through. So I began with just an idea to hold a fundraiser for women in Connecticut with breast cancer. And it ended up that I started a nonprofit for underserved single mothers in breast cancer, in active treatment for breast cancer treatment. And you know what? It's, it's been, probably the best thing I could have ever done. And then, then, you know, we're very niche. There's not a lot of nonprofits out there that focus on underserved single mothers. So I think it's really important because we're not only helping the moms, but we're helping the children. Exactly. Yeah. That's incredible. And, you know, it's, it's those things where your ears to the ground, right? You're just like listening to people's conversations and really being able to connect the dots to really see what the problem is and how you can serve and make a difference. I think I want to back up quickly about your diagnosis specifically, if you don't mind going back to the beginning. Do you know what stage you were with um, this triple positive? Yes, I was stage 1A. So I was very fortunate. Okay. That I got it. It did not get into the lymph nodes. That's wonderful. And because you were HER2 positive as well, did you have chemotherapy before surgery or after surgery? I know sometimes it varies. Yeah, for me, it was after surgery. Okay. You know, here's an interesting little fact that I found out. So prior to having children, I had multiple miscarriages and they could not figure out why. And I mean, like over 10. I had to have, um, go to a fertility specialist. They ran all kinds of blood work. They finally found out I had what was called the MTHFR gene mutation. That mutation was responsible for when I would get pregnant, the baby's um, neurotube, right, which forms the spine and the brain would not develop. So around nine or 10 weeks, I would miscarry. Fast forward to my cancer diagnosis, and I'm trying to understand what all these receptors are and what HER2 positive means. And I stumble across this section that says women with the MTHFR gene mutation are predisposed to having HER2 positive cancers. Yeah. Yeah. Did not know anything about that. But now I've learned that I have three daughters that I could have passed that gene on to. So now they have to be checked around the age of 18. Okay. To see, and there's things that I guess they can do if they carry that specific mutation. But isn't it fascinating? That is, because that's really a gene we don't hear much about. I know, right? So it's kind of like, just like I was always told years ago, if you breastfeed your child, you're less inclined to get breast cancer. I breastfed all three of my children. However, the caveat to that is if you have your children late, well, because of all the miscarriages, I was 35 when I had my first baby and I was 39 when I had my third. So that's considered late. I mean, there was all these things, but you don't know that when you're going through it. You know, how many people dig into that until they have to? And so how old were your children when you were initially diagnosed? 14, 13, and 10. And how did they take the news? My oldest, um, she was just, it was, she was just starting high school. It was her first week of high school when I got the confirmation. But she's very in tune with me and she kept asking me if something was wrong. You know, my husband and I would try to talk when we thought they were out of earshot and 
she just, she kind of knew. So when I, when I sat her down, my other two were still in school and I sat her down and and she just, she just collapsed. And her first question was, are you going to die? And I said, no, I'm not going to die. You know, I'm going to be fine. And just tried to be positive. She just, to this day at 19 years old, she will get anxiety when I have a doctor's appointment. She's the first one, you know, she's in college. She'll text me. How'd your doctor's appointment go? Like she remembers, she gets nervous. My middle daughter who was um, 12 at the time, she, or 13, she totally kind of shut down. She started to cry and I went to put my arms around her and she said, I need to be alone. And I have to tell you, that was pretty much how she handled things. She, she didn't want to see me without a wig. She didn't like me to walk around the house without my hat, at least. She couldn't make eye contact with me really well once I lost my hair. Like it really, it really affected her in ways that sometimes I can still see. She, she doesn't want to hear about my work. She doesn't want to hear about the women I meet. She's, she's kind of closed off in that respect. And my youngest, who was 10, was my little nurturer, caregiver, mommy, you're doing too much. Come lay on the couch with me and we'll cuddle, you know, that kind of thing. And she's still to this day that way. Wow. So all three different experiences too. Have have they rallied around each other as sisters during this process? Yes, they are very, very close. Mm -hmm. And they, they also do that thing, you know, where they have their like group chats. But I know that when like something comes up with me, they're on that group chat talking. They're all like feeding each other with information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good. Right. That they have each other and they're yeah, and a resource right. and support system for yeah. each other. They have each other. And the important thing for me was um, my father died when I was 19 from lung cancer. Mm. And I was very mature for my age, kind of an old soul. He was 17 when he got diagnosed. And in a lot of ways I was his caregiver. My mother did not have the stomach to help with some of the things that he was going through at home. So I would help him and I would change his dressings and I would, I would just be there. And I was very active in his care, right? So I, I would go to the doctor's appointments at 17 and 18 years old. I mean, it was a very different time, obviously, but so all I really knew about helping kids through it was what I knew from myself, which was I kind of had to prepare myself to lose my dad. Right. And Mm -hmm. he was my everything. I was super close to my father and I didn't want my kids to have that experience. So I just had to make sure that I let my kids know I was going to be fine. And I knew that, you know, once I got through the surgery and they had done, done the lymph node testing and all that, I knew that I would be okay. The trick was just what was getting through chemotherapy going to be like. Right. And like you said, taking this like very aggressive approach as well. Right. Right. So I just tried really hard not to have them see me in a compromised way. So when they were at school, if I needed to rest, I would. But when it was time for them to come home, I was up. They had their snack. They, you know, I pretty much made dinner most nights and it might not have been, you know, an elaborate meal the way they were used to it. But we had dinner together as a family. I tried to keep it going. What I couldn't do all the time was pick them up from school. If I was feeling fuzzy, I didn't want to drive. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, I was asleep a lot at night early where they would still be up and it would be like 830 and I'd be like, gotta go to bed now. Um, but for the most I still do that, by the way, like eight o'clock, I'm like starting my bedtime routine. My boyfriend looks at me. I'm like, I can at least make it till 830. But like nine o'clock, like I am horizontal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, you got to You got to do what you got to do. Right. So I I still hosted the holidays that year. I had help, but I hosted because I didn't want the big things that they're used to to change. So that was my goal is just to try to give them, okay, she's she's going through something, but she is going to be okay. Because all I remembered feeling at that age, you know, as a teenager was being totally afraid. And when was I going to find out that my father was going to die? Like that was where my head was. And I didn't want them to have that panic that I lived with for two years. So I tried to just portray, um, you know, yeah, keeping things as normal as possible for them. Right. Right. Exactly. Like you're still mom. Right. Exactly. I'm still mom. I'm still there for you. You still come first. And, you know, the other thing that is so interesting, nobody tells you when you're in diagnosis, you know, when you're diagnosed that it's beyond that. Oh, you're, you're, there's going to be no evidence of disease. I actually heard the word you're cured. Really? Are we ever cured? Yeah. Because nobody talked about the fact that 30% of us that are early stage will get a a stage four diagnosis at some point that it will metastasize. Nobody talked about that. I found that out through sitting in the infusion center and hearing women talk and then going home and doing some more, you know, educating online, you know, just infuriating because Mm. I don't know how anybody could use the word cured. You're not cured. Right. (laughs) You're in remission. I really struggle with that sometimes because I want to support the people who post on social media, yes, I'm cancer free or yes, I'm cured. But at the same time, too, I know that the medical terminology that my oncologist uses is there's no evidence of disease. There is meaning that when we do the mammogram, the ultrasound, the CT scans, like all of the the surveillance, we can't see anything. There's no evidence that there's cancer. And so that's what I use. That's what resonates with me. For me, with the work I do now, especially we've, we've turned kind of a corner, you know, we, we help single mothers and we give them um, funds to, you know, for rent and mortgage and all that. But more than ever, I'm seeing applications come on my desk that are for metastatic breast cancer. And these are women in their thirties and forties with small children and they're stage four and they need help and they need so much more than just to have the rent paid. <laughs> so the the fact of the matter is when I talk to them, some of the women we help, they don't even know what their diagnosis means. You know, and that to me is heartbreaking. And they did not know that this could come back. They just, there's a, you know, a deficit in what they've learned or what they've been able to learn or the healthcare that they've gotten right there. They don't have all the opportunities that maybe we've had. They, and so I've taken that kind of like on as my mission to help them. And so we have kind of turned that corner where we're now known as um, not just the single mothers, but we're known as the metastatic breast cancer, you know, nonprofit in our area because we'll, 
we help women with metastatic breast cancer on a recurring basis. And I don't think there's many nonprofits, at least on the East Coast, that do that, where you can come to us again and again and again. So we have women that I'm paying their rent every month, you know, and we'll help their kids with school supplies and clothing, and we give them gift cards for food. And just because I feel like knowing what I saw with my own children and they had the best of all scenarios, right? What, what is it like for those little kids that their parents were already struggling, their moms, they were already being raised by a single mom. They were struggling to put food on the table for them. And now they know my mom's ill and there's nobody to help us. Like that is just devastating to, for me to even think about. So to me, if I can help take the burden off those kids a little bit, if I can let them know that their mom's not alone, that could change their whole future and how they look at things. And just to remember that there was kindness. What is the process like for someone to have access to these grants? What is the application process? I think it's pretty simple. We've made it very straightforward. You go online to infinitestrength.org And our application is right online. So it would be our basic human needs grant and you'd fill out the form. And then we ask that with it, you upload um, a letter from your doctor and a letter from your nurse navigator or social worker stating that, yes, you do qualify for financial help. And most of the time, the social workers at the hospital will actually take that on and help the patient rather than the patient doing it on their own. Most of the time I end up getting the application sent directly from the hospital, and then I make the connection with the patient. I guess the good things about being on the smaller side is that I see every application, I process it, I sign off on it, and I talk to the women. And that's huge because I really do feel like I make such a connection with them. I check in on them from time to time. And, you know, the other thing is we, we turn the checks around really quick. So we'll pay directly to their rent or their utilities or whatever it is they need. But because I get to know them, I can also help maybe in some out of the box ways that a lot of the bigger nonprofits can't. My board um, feels very strongly about what we do. They're great about letting me make those decisions. So for example, and there was a woman that we helped that in 2019. And, and she's really the catalyst for why we made the recurring um, financial aid for metastatic breast cancer patients happen because I could not get this family out of my mind. She had five children. Three were younger, two were older. The younger three were exactly the ages of my girls. And she was months away from passing. And I talked to her on the phone and she was crying. And I said, what can I do? What more can I do to help you? And she said, I'm overwhelmed that you would ask. I don't, I don't know. Can I call you back? Sure. You can call me back. She called me and she said, could you give my kids a Christmas? So we did. We actually, I asked her to have her kids send me their Christmas list. And they all wrote their Christmas lists. And then I took a photographer friend with me 
And we, we asked her up front and she said, oh my gosh, to have pictures of the kids would be great. She dressed them all alike. And we took family photos that day and we left the presents. And, and this woman was doing all she could for her family. She lived in a, a tiny, tiny apartment. They had one love seat for all of them to sit on. No other furniture. She slept on an air mattress on the floor and gave the kids the bed. And they were the most gracious, sweet, kind family you could ever imagine. They laughed a lot. You could tell the kids were just crazy about her. And she had two girls and a boy. So her youngest was a boy. And he was so nurturing And like wanting to make sure she was comfortable and are you cold and, you know, so sweet. And so we were able to do something like that for them. We made a photo album. They had it as a Christmas gift. And the last text I got from her was, I'll never forget what you did for us. And those are things, you know, that's just one example. Those are things that we can do because I get to know them. I know what they need. And it's it to me, it's so much more than just let me pay a bill for you. It's about trying to make, you know, life isn't good right now. It's it's very unhappy. It's filled with sadness. You've got a lot of things you've got to figure out. Some of these women don't know how to even figure that out. Like you're talking about who's going to take care of my kids, wills, and they don't have the money to go to a lawyer, you know. So to me, it's about just trying to make them smile for a minute, trying to give their kids a memory with their mom. That's a good memory. It's, it's, that's a very important piece for me. Roberta, this absolutely leaves me speechless. How incredible to know the people personally that you are serving, knowing that you're making such a huge impact and difference in their lives. How tremendous. And I know as part of infinite strength, you are also starting to get into some day retreats. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So I came home after spending the day with that family in 2019. And I just was always thinking about what they needed, seeing how they lived. Okay. And, and in the last few years, again, seeing how patients that we support that come to us that do qualify for assistance, I getting a glimpse into their life and seeing that they don't have the creature comforts that so many of us take for granted, right? They don't just go to the store and fill their refrigerator with food. There's a a, a video on our website um, called In Her Words, and the the video is Michelle and Erica's story. And when you get to Erica's story, the way the video opens up, I mean, we're in her home, and she says there's not much food in here when she opens the refrigerator, and she's got two children. That's the norm for a lot of the women we help. Um, not having the money to do the basics for their kids so that the, the kids kind of have, you know, activities to look forward to. And, and so I started to think about what we could do to, to take them away from the environment that is their day to day and give them something special to look forward to. So in my head, because I'm always 20 steps ahead of where I need to be to start something. I'm like, we're going to buy a house 
and it's going to be a day house and everybody can come and they can get a hot meal and they can get support and they can get our therapy and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And so I called together an advisory board and everybody loves the idea, but we're like, okay, wait, (laughs) oh, we got to back up the truck. So I started talking to other nonprofits that aren't in the breast cancer space, but do have those freestanding houses for support, right? Well, what we found out is COVID made all of that just a nightmare because with the shutdown, what do you do with those houses? You're still paying all the bills. You still have all the maintenance, but they weren't allowing anybody to come in. And let's face it, nobody knows what's happening with COVID and could could it ever happen again? Could we get shut down? What is going to happen? So one of my team members on the advisory board is a lawyer who sits on another board for this other place who said, I wouldn't, I would do something a little bit different. And I would start by renting space and, and do a pilot program and see like through trial and error, what works, what doesn't, so that you're ready when we do come out of this to then move forward. Well, it's interesting because I'm already seeing that this whole pilot program could be a way for us to do this in other locations so that we can go where the patients are versus having the patients come to us. So for October, November, December, we're holding the Hope Retreat in Guilford, Connecticut. So Guilford is a beautiful little shoreline town. It's the next town over from mine in Madison, Connecticut, and they have a lovely community center. And it's right on the town green with a park and down the street from the beach. And for us, it works because, you know, the women that are going to be attending, they are metastatic. They will have children between, we're saying for the pilot program, ages five to 12. And what we're going to do is when they arrive, we're going to give them all breakfast, have everybody kind of meet each other because they're going to be from everywhere around the state and then the moms are going to go into a support group and the kids are going to go into a room that is fully equipped as a play area for art and music and games and just fun and then we give everybody lunch together family style and then we end the day with the mom and the child doing an activity together in one room all of them and they get to take that activity home, whatever that may be. So one example could be of, we give them the makings of a pillow and the mom writes a note and they tuck the note into the pillow together and they sew it up. And then the child has that pillow to leave with and knows that there's a piece of their mom in the pillow kind of thing. So that's just an example. But I think that um, the response from the hospitals has been, overwhelmingly positive. Everybody loves it. We don't have something like this in our area. So I think that's why there's such a need. And the patients are already, we're so excited. My daughters are so excited. My son's so excited because it is, it's going to give them a chance to get out of their own environment, come to someplace different. And it's going to be about, for the kids, it's going to be about happiness. My goal for that is for them to leave and say, mom, I can't wait to come back. And for the moms, my goal is to have them feel like they're unburdened a bit because they're going to have time with a family therapist or 
social worker that specializes in that grief counseling aspect to kind of talk about where they are and how they're feeling right now. They're going to have time to journal. They're all going to be given journals. Um, and then, you know, over time we will, we'll bring exercise specialists in for cancer patients. We'll bring nutritionists in. We'll bring, we can bring legal advice in, you know, there's so many different things we can do. And then when they all leave, one thing they will get, and they don't know it, but we're going to give them all a hundred dollar grocery card too. Wow. That's just incredible and amazing. I look forward to catching up with you in a couple of months to hear how the pilot goes and the amazing stories and lives that you are so positively impacting and supporting. How can our listeners stay in touch with you and follow you on social media or on your website and via email? Please let us know. So it's Roberta at infinitestrength.org and Facebook is Infinite Strength. Instagram is at Strength for Healing. And Twitter is, and I always forget this, um, at Roberta Lom, L-O-M-3. Awesome. But you know what? I do want everybody to know that, yes, we are Connecticut-based. And primarily, I feel like, you know, the, the, the hospitals for sure that know us the best are all throughout Connecticut. But we are a New England nonprofit. So we help women that are eligible in Connecticut. Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, and Massachusetts. And, you know, we work with the um, nurse navigators at Lifespan in Rhode Island. We work with Dartmouth-Hitchcock up in New Hampshire. And so those hospitals know us. The rest is just women doing their own work and advocating for themselves. And they get online and they find us. And that's how we kind of get involved there. But so if, if somebody's listening and they're in any one of those states, we are happy to help. And all they have to do is contact me. And if they have any questions before they fill anything out and they, you know, just email me. What wonderful support. I am so glad to have you on today's podcast and episode and share infinite strength as an amazing resource to our New England community and hopefully over time to be expanding with your day hope retreats. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast and sharing your breast cancer story with us and how you've taken this pain into purpose. Thanks. Bye. Have a good day. Thanks again. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you would like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, you can find out more by visiting our website at survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.